We're a nation that loves a comeback, loves a second chance. So even when Christian was praying, I was reminded of that, listening to his British accent, and yet with all due respect to my British brother, I grew up in what? New England, right? A second chance at a better England. It's, it's dawning on you slowly, but it's coming. There it is. All right. All right. All right, but we see it in politics, right? Whether or not it was Abraham Lincoln who, who lost and very dejected and defeated, demoralized, almost 50 years old, thinking his political career was over and yet resurrected a second chance, not only wins his party's nomination, but becomes president, one of the most famous presidents we know in this country. We can think about it in business. Think of Steve Jobs, right? Founded Apple in the 70s, fired by Apple in the 80s, brought back in the late 90s, turned it in by the 2000s to the largest company in the world. Think about it in sports, right? Who doesn't love a sports comeback, a, a sports second chance? So I loathe baseball. No offense. For me, like Dante's Inferno, one of those levels is baseball. <laughs> but I love the rookie. Right? Who doesn't love the rookie or the natural? Right? Great comeback stories. Think of Cinderella Man. Think of the warrior. Right? We love a do-over. We love a chance to make things right. Friend, have you ever wanted a comeback? Have you ever wanted a second chance? Have you ever wanted a fresh start? Maybe in high school or college? You'd love to do that over. Maybe you goofed off a little too much, stayed out a, a bit too late, studied too little. You'd love a do-over, love a chance to, to do that again, make it right. Or maybe it was a job. You, know, you dropped the ball, let something slip, let something slide, made some mistakes, maybe paid the price in that job. Maybe it was a financial decision. Maybe you rushed into something, and whether or not that thing was a student loan that you didn't give careful attention to, or whether or not it was the purchase of a property, or whether or not it was just the slow accumulation of debt and stuff, now you find yourself in a hole so deep, you don't know how you're going to dig out of it. Maybe it's a marriage, right? You coasted, didn't guard your heart, didn't pursue theirs. And then the unthinkable happens, something that they said or maybe something you did, and you wish you could just take it back and start all over. Friends, many of us, I think, that fresh start is exactly what we seek, right? We need change, and so we look to enact change, and maybe we, we start a new friend group, and we change our friend group, or maybe we change our careers, or maybe we even think the answer is in changing our spouses, Either way, we seek to put the past behind us and to start over. But here's my question. If you got a fresh start this morning, how confident are you that this time things would work out differently? So to put it another way, if you were given a do-over, would you really do any better? And friends, it's questions like this that are going to bring us to our text this morning in the Old Testament book of Numbers. They're going to be in Numbers chapters 20 through chapter 21. So I'm going to invite you to turn there now. Numbers, we're going to begin in chapter 20. And if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, we provide them in the seat backs before you. Red Bibles, you can find our text beginning on page 128. Now if you're just joining us, Numbers 
is really the story of why it took Israel 40 long years to travel what should have just taken them about four short weeks. Right? God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. He had wed them there at Sinai, uniquely taken this people as his own people. He spoke to them. He dwelt among them. He fed them. He provided for them. He even promised to go out before them, which is exactly what he did. And yet, in spite of all that, the people rebel against him and they reject him there at Kadesh. And so, for 40 years, their judgment was to wander in this wilderness until the last of that disobedient generation dropped into the dust and lay there in the dirt. And this morning, friends, we actually come to the end of that 40 years where the old generation has died out and a new generation is rising and Israel is given a fresh start, a do-over, right? a new chance, a new lease on life. And will it turn out any better for Israel? Right? What does their experience about their fresh start, so to speak, have to teach us about those things we think we most need? Well, for you faithful note takers, just an, an alert. Uh, this sermon won't exactly have multiple points in the sense that I often do and we often think about it. Instead, I just want to approach the text with that basic question and let the text answer it. Namely, given a do-over, would we do any better? What does the lesson of Israel have to teach us? Can we really turn over a new leaf, so to speak, right? That's the sort of the question I want us to be thinking about, and I want us to look at the text and see how the text answers that question. So let's first look at chapter 20, verse 1. Chapter 20, verse 1. We read there, And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there. And was buried there. And we're just going to stop there in verse 1. So chapter 20 opens really with this somber news that Miriam, right, the prophetess that, that had famously like, composed the song of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, right, Exodus 15. Moses' sister, Miriam, was that she had died. And we're seeing once again another body in the desert dropped to the dust. And we read it happened when? Well, in the first month. Now, we're not told here exactly what year it is, but if we look forward, if you, you don't need to go there now, but if you look forward later, Numbers 33, 38, that passage is going to make clear that we have all of a sudden jumped to the 40th year of Israel coming out of Egypt. And so between chapter 19 and chapter 20 pass 40-odd years. The entirety, almost, of Israel's wilderness wanderings passes here in between these chapters without a comment, in utter silence. And friends, we may not think we know what was happening in those 40 years, but we actually do know what was happening, right? Death happened in those 40 years. In those years, the old generation of Israel was passing away. What did they do? They, well, they had lived, they had married, they had raised families. They grew old, and they died in the desert. One by one, that rebellious generation 
died off. And the silence, I think, of Scripture here on that generation, I don't think that silence is an accident. That's Scripture's own commentary, so to speak, on this way of life. And it's a deafening silence because it is not a friendly commentary. We're seeing that a life lived in rebellion against God, well, that life results in death. That kind of life, if we seek to live it, well, we're merely waiting for the hearse to arrive, right, and take us on our last ride. Now, we can seek to escape that reality of our impending death. We could seek to dress it up with distractions and diversions. We can seek to make ourselves as comfortable as possible, right, rejecting the inevitable. But we can't escape where it all leads. As it led them, it leads to death, and it leads to dust, and it leads to destruction. And that's what this life of rebellion that that characterized the first generation of Israel, this life in opposition to God, that's where it delivered them, there to the dust. But notice where we are, though. It's 40 years later, and we're back in Kadesh, verse 1. The very place, right, back in chapter 13, 40 years ago, that the first generation, they landed in Kadesh, right at the southern entrance into the promised land. So right here we find ourselves, and we find Israel standing in the same place and on the same ground that their parents stood when they rebelled so many years ago. So it's been 40 years, so to speak now, and the new generation has been in Wilderness University, right? They've been raised up, Wilderness U, 40 years. They are given now a fresh start, and chapter 20 becomes a kind of entrance exam into the university. Or maybe you can think of it as an exit exam, depending on how you want to look at it. They're given a do-over. Are they going to do any better? We'll look at chapter 20, verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? That we should die here, both we and our cattle. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. There is no water to drink. And then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of the meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. And so you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. All right, so stopping there, their fresh start doesn't look so fresh, does it? If this passage sounds remotely familiar, it's because it is very similar to the passage back in Exodus 17 at the start of that chapter where the first generation of Israel, after being delivered from Egypt and being shortly in the desert, starts to complain and grumble about what? About water. They quarreled with Moses, Exodus 17 verse 2 which is exactly what the second generation is doing here in Numbers 20, verse 3. They're quarreling against and with Moses. And they'll complain in Exodus 17, 3, 
Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? That's what they said back in Exodus 17. And what are they saying in 20 verse 4? Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? Right, Almost the same language. And so what does Moses do? He assembles the people. He takes his staff. He brings water from a rock. That's what he does back in Exodus 17. What's he commanded to do here? To take his staff and to go to the rock, assemble the people, and bring water out of the rock. The very same thing. Forty years later. But it's deja vu. And yet, tragically, the children seem to be walking in their parents' footsteps. It appears the apple hasn't fallen very far from the tree. Now, friends, so often what we think we need is simply a change of our circumstances. Right? If we could just change schools or if we could just change friends or change our doctor or change our job or change our spouse or change our church, whatever it might be, if we could just bring about that change and if we could have that change, then all would be better. But friends, our circumstances don't change our hearts. Our circumstances only reveal what is already inside of our hearts. Right, the presenting problem here in Numbers 20 is lack of water. But once right, the complaints department, right, once that department opens up, and once it's open for business, notice everything and everything there in that new generation comes rushing out like water out of that rock. And they blame Moses, they blame their surroundings, they blame everyone and everything except for themselves. Right, we're seeing the second generation, and it's much like the first. They've got a kind of a blame-retardant coating that's around their hearts. And they just can't seem to take responsibility for anything. Right, just like their first parents back in the garden, what do they do? They point the finger. They don't take responsibility. They play the victim. Right? They're a victim of circumstances, a victim of someone else's pain or difficulty of others. And friends, that's one of the greatest problems when you adopt the kind of victim mentality. It prevents you, blinds you to the actual real problem. And that's one of the great problems with those who adopt it. Because the problems, we're often told, right, what are they? They're out there, but we're already seeing right here with the second generation, the problems where it has always been. The problem is right in here. The problem is right in the heart. For when we're given another chance, right, this second generation, they're given another chance, they're faring no better than the first generation. And yet it only gets worse. Chapter 20, verse 10, what do we read? Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. 
Friends, the wilderness has just claimed two more victims. Right? This time here, the rot has gone straight to the top, right? Gone straight to Moses and Aaron. And now we might be thrown at first, right? What exactly did Moses and Aaron do to justify this judgment of God? Well, notice in chapter 20, verse 8, Moses was charged with what? Well, with taking his staff and gathering the people and speaking to the rock. But what does he do? No, he gathers the people and he goes all Bobby Knight on them. Right? Instead of speaking to the rock, what does he do? He speaks and not just that, he berates the people. He calls them rebels. The Lord didn't say he should do that. He calls them rebels and then, and then he beats the rock. Not just once, but twice. Now Psalm 106 provides a commentary here and it tells us that, that Moses spoke in wrath and in anger. Instead of graciously directing the people toward God, he directs them angrily toward himself and toward Aaron. Moses is standing here in judgment upon the people when he was supposed to be graciously addressing the people. And he takes credit for what's about to happen. Notice verse 20. He says, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Now wait, Moses, who's exactly performing the miracle here? Is this your miracle with Aaron or is this God's? Right? And in beating the rock, though, what is Moses in effect doing? Moses is taking credit for it. He's saying it is by my hand that this water will flow. You see, Moses here with Aaron is playing God. He's setting himself up both as judge and as deliverer. And God wanted to show himself holy before his people. And he wanted to do that how? By being gracious to his people. Gracious to the second generation. You know, sometimes we think God's holiness is only expressed in judgment. But friend, it is also expressed beautifully in grace. And what's even more tragic about the scene is that Moses has been here before. And when given a second chance to lead this second generation, even Moses, the great Moses, even he fails. You know, friends, even more than that, God likens himself in the scriptures to a rock. Deuteronomy 32.4, Psalm 78.35. And in this sense, and pointing back specifically to these stories, the Lord, in effect, is allowing himself to be put on trial. Standing before Israel. And he'll put himself on trial instead of putting the people on trial in their complaining. And the Lord was willing to be struck himself instead of his rebellious people so that they might receive the life-giving water. You know, Paul in the New Testament will go on to say that Israel drank from that supernatural rock and that rock was who? It was Christ, 1 Corinthians 10.4. You know, the tragic irony is that in, in judging the people and then in presuming to deliver the people, Moses was in fact lashing out at God himself. He became exactly what he accused the people of becoming. He became the rebel. Again, the rot has risen straight to the top. 
So just a brief word here to pastors and elders, those at UBC, those who might desire one day to pastor. Our charge is not to beat and to berate the sheep. That's not what we're called to do as pastors. We're called to what? To assemble the sheep. We're called to shepherd the sheep. How do we do that? Not by scolding them, but by tenderly speaking to them of the life-giving word of God. Right? We bring as shepherds God's people to their rock, right? the rock of their salvation. And then we let him do the work. We let his waters flow. We are not functional saviors. Christ is. He alone is able to be the great shepherd of his sheep. Right? We point the people to Christ and not to us. Not to lean on us. Not wrongly so. And yet for sheep this morning, right, if you're a member of, of UBC, of this congregation, friends, there's a word for you here as well. This also means, right, your elders, your pastors, we aren't your functional saviors either, right? Christ alone is your savior. We can't save you, but we can point you to the one and bring you to the one who can. And that's Jesus Christ, and your hope has to finally be in him and not finally in us. And here they are again at Kadesh, right, 40 years later. And just as that first generation refused to enter into the promised land in their rebellion, so this generation is going to be prevented from entering through, we're going to see Edom's own opposition, right? If we, if we were to keep reading, which I won't keep reading, but in, in verses 14 through 21, we're going to see Edom opposed Israel and their entrance into the promised land. And that might strike us as perhaps odd because they actually share a same common father, Isaac. Remember Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob became Israel. Esau became the Edomites. Right? Edomites are descended from Esau. It's why Moses refers to Israel as Edom's brother. Right, Edom's brother, going back to Jacob and Esau, verse 14, their relatives. And yet so much for brotherly love in these verses because they're going to be prevented from entering. And so Israel, again, the second generation, is still destined to wander. And so they're going to have to backtrack. They're going to have to circumvent all the way around Edom. They're going to have to go all the way from that side, all the way to the east side, up the other side of the Jordan River. And that's going to take months and more, more wandering. It's going to be exhausting for them. And yet along the way, God's going to lead them to another mountain, to Mount Hor. So look with me to chapter 20, verse 23. Chapter 20, verse 23. They come to Mount Hor, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor on the border of the land of Edom, let Aaron be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land that I have given to the people of Israel, because you, and that use plural, Right? Because you all rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar, his son, and bring them up to Mount Hor. And strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar, his son. And Aaron shall be gathered to his people and shall die there. Let's stop there at verse 26. Friends, death has just claimed another victim. 
another of that first generation in Aaron is passing away, stripped of his glory, right, of his priestly vestments, they're going to be passed on to another, to his son Eleazar. Friends, death, again, we're seeing it's the great equalizer of us all, right? It humiliates us and humbles us. And so notice in just but a few short months, Moses' protective sister Miriam, right? His supportive brother Aaron, the Lord has taken both of them. Which brings us to chapter 21. And Israel has, albeit a new high priest, Eleazar, right? Aaron's son, the new generation. So maybe now, chapter 21, maybe now this is going to mark the start of a new era. Right? Can Israel truly turn over a new leaf? Now chapter 21. And the, phrase, the first great test comes in chapter 21 verses 1 to 3 because Israel's attacked by a Canaanite king, Arad. And in 21.3 we learn that this place where they're attacked is called Hormah. And friends, if Hormah sounds familiar, it's because this is where the first generation, back in their rebellion... Back in chapter 14, when they refused to go into the land and the Lord gave them his judgment, remember what they did? They panicked and they presumed to go on their own without the Lord and they were struck down where? At Hormah. And here we are, nearly 40 years later, back at Hormah. And yet this time what happens? Well, Israel doesn't presume to go. Instead, verse 2, Israel, when some of the people are taken captive in verse 1, Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. So notice what they do. They don't presume to go. No, they, they pray and they seek the Lord's counsel. They wait on the Lord. They will not fight without him. And here we get, when they win this, this battle, this is the first Military victory for the people of Israel, in effect. Right here, this generation all of a sudden gets its first win. And it looks like things are turning up and looking up for the people of Israel. It looks like this second generation may now indeed be succeeding where the previous generation failed. They're turning over a new leaf, right? Maybe the do-over was their answer after all. And yet we come to 21.4. What do we read? From Mount Hor? They set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Remember, they have to go all the way around. Edomites won't let them through. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. We're going to stop there in verse 6. Friend, it's deja vu again, right? Just history repeating itself. It's not, uh, this, uh, this is what their parents had done, right? We're speaking repeatedly against God and against Moses, verse 3. It's not, again, how, it, or I, sh I should say, it is just again. Remember, their parents complained about the menu. They didn't like the service at the hotel. They didn't like the menu. They didn't like the food. They complained with the menu. Remember what God does? He gives them quail as a judgment. Here we are again. They're complaining about food, right? Everyone who loves donuts, just this blasphemy, right? Go at these people. Either way, 
They complain again, worthless food. They don't like the menu, just like the first generation. What happens? There's another plague. This time it's not quail, though. It's in the form of serpents. It's like that old camp song, right? Second verse, same as the first, only a little bit louder and what? A little bit worse, right? It's the same thing, history repeating itself. It looks like we've made no progress at all. Indeed, again, the apple not fallen far from the tree. And friends, notice how none of these stories have been set up by accident. I've tried to prep you for it. But notice in the same way that the first generation came out of Egypt and God led them to Kadesh, so here the second generation being led from the wilderness again to Kadesh. And just as that first generation provided water from a rock, so would the second generation. And just as the first generation is going to be led to a mountain, Mount Sinai, right, with Moses, and just as they were going to be given a priest in Aaron, so the second generation led to another mountain, Mount Hor. This time they're given a new priest, right, in Eleazar. And just as the first would do battle at Hormah, so the second generation would do battle at Hormah. You see what's happening? God is giving them their do-over. He's saying, you've got your second chance. And how do they do with their second chance? marginally better. Like at best you can say they do that. Right? They get one victory there at Hormah. But apart from that, they utterly blow it. They complain like their parents. They grumble like their parents. They suffer plagues just like their parents. And they drop in the dust just like their parents. It turns out they fare no better than their parents Because they're no different than their parents. The apple hasn't fallen far from the tree because they're all of what? The same tree. That's the problem. They suffer from the same sinful heart that their parents suffered from. And friends, let this be a warning to us. Let this cause us to pause and stop and reflect. Because if your hope in this life is just that you're going to have a second chance. And if your hope is to get a do-over, and you're convinced that if given the do-over, you know this time it will be different and you'll do better. I want to push on you and say, why are you so certain? How are you so sure? Israel was convinced 40 years of watching their parents drop and die. We will not make the same mistakes they make. You know that's what they said. You know they blame their parents for their 40 years. And where are we? Right back to where we started. Friends, it's what criminals say all the time in jail, isn't it? Right? When they're brought before the parole board or the judge. Right? I've learned my lessons. I'm a changed man. I won't go back to that old way of life. Right? I'm turning over a new leaf. Whatever language. That's what they say. And yet we know what the recidivism rates are. They're nearly 90% that those same people will be back in jail within five or more years. Now we can point to various reasons for that, and I'm not going to get into the justice system and all of that, right? That's not my point. My point is simply to note that second chances rarely turn out different for us. There's a reason why history repeats itself. It seems that we're not so good at turning over a new leaf, changing our stars, getting a fresh start, because we have the same 
sinful heart. You know, that's the problem with religion. That's the problem with, with even wonderful plays like, you know, Victor Hugo's Les Mis. You know, you may know that play. You got Jean Valjean imprisoned, I think, for something like 19 odd years for a crime. And he's let out. And what does he do? He seeks to redeem himself by turning his life around, by living an honorable life, living a dignified life. And Victor Hugo presents Jean Valjean in this way because he thinks we can do it. He thinks that the second chance is just what we need. And given that second chance, yes, we can. We can turn our life around. We can redeem ourselves. And friends, that makes for a great novel, or at least a long novel. But that was Victor Hugo's notion of religion. But just notice the Bible doesn't have that same notion. That's not how life works. Yeah, we might be able to reform a few things here and there. We might be able to make some small changes, and maybe they'll last for a while. But friends, we can't keep and maintain those changes. Deep down, we're still criminals. Deep down, we still want to have life our own way. We're still going to go our own path, and that's the problem. And more to the point, that's just not how life works. It's just also, friends, that's not how God works. Because when we make religion simply about second chances, what do we make about? We make it about us. We make it about our performance. We make it about our ability, about our chance to right those past wrongs. And friends, we can't do that. We can't right those wrongs. You know, if, if you've ever had a debt that's gone to collection, and I'm not speaking at all from personal experience here, But if you've ever had one go to collection and you wait long enough on it, like if you got a ticket once when you were in Italy and failed to pay it, and the Italian government sold it to a debt collector in the U.S., again, not autobiographical at all, and if that would ever happen to you, one of the things you might come to find is the debt collector is going to say, listen, you just pay 20 cents on the dollar and we can settle this free and clear. And some of us think God is like that. He's like a small claims debt collector. And we make a partial payment, right? And he just excuses the whole debt. Friends, God's not like that. He's holy. And because he's holy, he can't just wink and nod and pretend like our sins don't have consequences, that they don't have effects, that someone doesn't have to pay for them. They have costs. And someone will pay those costs and those debts. Every last one. And there is no way that we ourselves can pay for all the debts that we have incurred against a holy God. We just can't do it. So even if, hypothetically, we could change our stars, we could reform our lives, no second chance can ever erase all the debts we created in that first chance. Second chances don't appear to be the answer. Or do they? Because we keep reading and things do appear to change. If you keep reading, things look up for Israel. Chapter 21, verses 10 to 20. If you were to read those, the, the place names, right, they pop like staccato at us. It's, it's as if the pace quickens as Israel goes from camp to camp. And they're making their way to the border of the promised land. And instead of complaining, what do we read? Well, we read about singing. There in verses, 
end of 14, end of 15, and 16, and 18. And what are they singing about? They're singing about wells, and they're singing about water, and, and how God has provided for his people. And then in 21, 21, what do they do? They hit a roadblock. And between them and the promised land stands whom? Well, King Sihon of the Amorites. And look with me to chapter 1, verse 23. We read there, but Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. And he gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jehaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, those are rivers, as far as to the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. Just stop right there. So notice the pattern has shifted some. The parents went from kind of deliverance to death. That was their story of Egypt sort of to death. They went from triumph, and everything kind of ended in tragedy for that generation. But now this generation seems to be moving in a slightly different path. They go from tragedy right there back with the serpents, and now we're getting stories of triumph and victory in life. And these victories are going to be commemorated again in song. There's not grumbling. Songs in verses 27 through 30. And as they're going to move up the eastern side of the Jordan River as we come to 2131, they're going to move up the eastern side of that river. And notice what Moses does in 2123. Sorry, 2132. What does this Moses do? He sent spies out to spy out the land. So just as the first generation had their spies, so this second generation has their spies. And who do they uncover but Og, king of Bashan there in verse 33. And Deuteronomy 3 tells us this king was a massive man, a very large man. He was part of those men for whom, remember, the first spies went out. And they talked about these giants for whom they looked like grasshoppers in comparison. Well, here's Og, king of Bashan, and here's a real-life giant. And the spies are coming back. Only this time, this generation, they don't cower do they? Chapter 21, verse 34. What do we read? But the Lord said to Moses, do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left, and they possessed his land. And then read on to 22, verse 1. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. Now, Numbers doesn't elaborate here, but Deuteronomy tells us that in these battles, they took over 60 fortified cities, right? These are amazing victories here toward the end of chapter 21. And and defeating these enemies, they basically secured all the land on the eastern side of the Jordan, So all of the land that would become the home of the Gadites, right, and of the Reubenites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, right, all that land, that's what they just took. The second generation is doing what the first generation had failed to do. And notice when we're left in 22.1, where are we left? Right at Jericho. So it's at this point, basically, Deuteronomy is written, And it's at this point that we pick up across the river from uh, Jericho, across the Jordan. That's where Joshua picks up. All right, so the promised land is already now within the people's grasp. 
And so here's my question. To what do we owe this great change? How did we go from chapter 20 to chapter 21, the second half of 21? Was it always just within Israel's grasp? Did they always have the ability? Did they just need the second chance? And now they really got it. They're taking advantage of it. Friends, what accounts for the change? Did Israel just proverbially like pull herself up by her moral bootstraps, right? That's the question. Ask yourself in the narrative, where did Israel's fortunes shift? Where does everything turn? We're going to see it's not just where the story, but basically the whole story of numbers hinges on a particular event. And it's back there at the fiery serpents. That's where everything turned for them. The people were dropping like flies. But after that incident, there's basically no more death in the book. Everything changes from the time of the serpents on. Israel is no longer, as you go out through the rest of Numbers, Israel is no longer looking back. They're no longer longing for Egypt. Instead, they're looking forward for what's promised, for what's to come. Right? They're walking now by faith and not by sight. So what happened? Chapter 21, go back, look at verse 7. Chapter 21, verse 7. And the people came to Moses, right? They're all getting bit by these serpents for the ways in which they've grumbled and complained about their food. And the people came to Moses, verse 7, and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So notice what's happened. The people have confessed their sin They've pleaded to Moses as their mediator, pleaded to a mediator on their behalf. And God provides them a sacrifice of sorts. This fiery serpent, right? A snake lifted up high on a pole. And of course, those snakes were the cause of their own death. But of course, those snakes were more than that, weren't they? Those snakes were meant to remind them of the original snake, right? The one that had slithered back there in the garden, the one who had brought death in the very beginning, the one who is pictured as Satan himself, as a serpent. And so by lifting that defeated serpent high upon the pole, God was saying the serpent's sting is gone. The sting of death has been defeated. Look to me and live. And friends, that's all it took. Unlike most sacrifices of water or sacrifices of blood, where they had to be sprinkled in some way in order to make the unclean clean, this kind of sacrifice was different. Instead of them trying to heal themselves and wash themselves and work themselves to rid themselves of the wound, they merely needed to look beyond themselves to look high upon that pole, to look and see the sting of death defeated, and to live. All they had to do. But friends, this is hard for us to do. 
you know, it would be many years later that Jesus is talking to that religious ruler, that wise man Nicodemus that Emily read earlier in the service from John 3, a man who knew the law, a man who sought to obey the law, a man who wanted eternal life. And Jesus says to him, you know what, the law is not enough. Outwardly, right, you can try and do some things and you can spiff yourself up and you can, and you can look kind of sweet, but inwardly you're sour and you're rotten and the problem is your heart. You need to be born again. That's what Jesus says to Nicodemus, right? You need what? You need a new heart, he says. And how does one get that new heart? Where does this kind of supernatural change for a new heart, where does that come from? Remember how Jesus closes that passage. He closes that passage and gives the answer by turning right back here to Numbers chapter 21. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. That's the difference. Belief. It's what the first generation did not possess. It's what the second generation did possess. One marked by unbelief, the other by belief. Jesus is helping us in John 3 and he's teaching his people what he, what he had sought to teach them for millennia. That we're not healed. That we're not made right finally on the basis of our own religious devotion or our moral achievements or our spiritual excellence. That's not what makes us right. We're called to what? To look and live. He says, look to me. Christ says, look to me and live. Friends, we don't need a fresh start. We need a new heart. And if you want a summary for Numbers 20 and 21, I think that's it right there. We don't need a fresh start. We need a new heart. Friends, Jesus didn't die on the cross to give you a do-over. That's not what it was for. That's not what his death was meant to accomplish. Not so that you could simply work harder and work smarter, right? Try to save yourself. This is not Jean Valjean, right? That's not what his death was meant to accomplish, And that's what the second generation is beginning to grasp. But friend, the problem with that generation is they too would fail. And the generations that precede them would fail to grasp it. And they would start looking down and stop looking up. And they would think that they needed a fresh start, right? They just needed the Romans out of their way. And Jesus would come. And he would not just offer a fresh start. But what is he offering to Nicodemus? Something so much better, right? He's offering him a new heart. Hearts from stone changed into hearts of flesh. The very thing Chris was praying in that prayer of praise. Hearts that were bent against God, now bent toward God. Jesus, through the Spirit, will provide the change we need. So I ask you, do you really think that your second chance is your best chance at reform? Do you really think that if you get a do-over, you do it all better? Friend, again, what has fundamentally changed about your life that would make you think the second time will turn out any different than the first? Because God's not calling us in this life to look inward, to dig deep, to try harder, to live better as if somehow we possess the power to change. Nor does he simply leave us in our sins to despair. No, he says, look to Christ. Look to him who is lifted high. The one who bore death's sting so that we wouldn't have to. The one who was then raised triumphantly over death, over the grave, conquering sin and death, so that all who might look to him 
By notice what they're doing, they're repenting of their sins in 21. They're going to their mediator. They're begging for forgiveness. And they're looking by faith, which is exactly what we do. Friend, try again and you'll die again. It's what we constantly see with Israel. Look to Christ and live. But Christian, it's no different for us. It's the same thing we have to do every single day. Right? When the days are tough, when the journey's hard, when the adversaries seem great, when we're worn out and we don't know how, we're just going to wake up and somehow do it all over again. What do we do? We keep looking to him. We keep trusting in him. We keep relying upon him and believing that he will meet us and he will supply us and he will see us safely through because that's exactly what Jesus does. And how do we know that? Well, notice, what was Israel given? Israel was given both a word and a sign. They were given both visual and verbal assurance. Right? God spoke to them and then caused and asked them to look, to look to a sign. Friends, we in Christ have been given such visible and verbal assurance. And it's right here in the Lord's Supper. It's what we're about to do and to partake together. When we come and Jesus himself has called upon us to take and to eat and to drink in remembrance of the death that he has suffered for us to deliver us from sin. And so we proclaim that death on the cross as we celebrate the supper. And then we also look forward and proclaim his certain resurrection, well, the resurrection that happened and the resurrection and the return, right, when he comes from heaven back for his people. And yet in the present, what do we do? We live by the sustaining power of his grace that keeps us to the end, right? We can't lose, unlike the old covenant, right? They seem to be able to come in and out of belief and unbelief, the genuine Christian that's been saved by Christ in the new covenant that possessed the deposit, guaranteeing that inheritance, right? That can't be lost because we never want it. Christ won it, so we have it and we remember it and celebrate it here at the supper. Friends, it's only effectual though, right? As it's exercised in faith. The same way it was for Israel, the same way it is for us. So again, I just ask one last time, right, what's your hope this morning? What is your hope this morning? Is it simply in a fresh start? Or will it be in a new heart? Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise. And we give you praise that in your kindness, you leave us signs. You leave us reminders testimonies that all of your promises that you have already fulfilled and those promises you have yet to fulfill you indeed will fulfill because you are faithful it's not what we must do but what you have done for us in Christ and so we pray every one of us those who have not ever professed faith in Christ that they would look to Christ and live their second chance is no chance at all and that we who are in Christ would look and live, knowing what awaits the glories that awaits your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
friend, in preparation for the supper and just in reflecting on what we've, we've heard from Numbers 21 and, and in chapter 20, let's stand.